This is an ABC podcast. You know, one of the joys of this episode of The Mindfield, I suspect, is going to be listening to all the various creative, frequently tortured ways that we try to avoid swearing. Um, there will not be a lot of language, I'm predicting, uh, on this, but there is going to be an unavoidable amount because the very topic kind of has it built into it for philosophical reasons. Um, yes. But, of course, we don't want to be gratuitous about this, and we, we never would be gratuitous about something like that. But nonetheless, it's going to be even funny watching Even the show we did, Waleed, even the show that we did about swearing Didn't had a remarkably little amount of swearing, and certainly no gratuitous swearing. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty proud of that That's one. probably true. That's Scott Stevens, by the way. Waleed Ali's my name. This is The Minefield. We negotiate the ethical moral dilemmas of modern life. But I think it's going to be – we've got to laugh at ourselves here, don't we? Like to yeah. watch ourselves contort ourselves for for reasons of sort of editorial convention and politeness is going to be it's going to be good fun. So good there's luck. a show there's a show just begging to be done on euphemisms. Yes, I, I find euphemisms both the most preposterous form of speech, one of the most preposterous forms of speech. Really? Yeah, and and also something that is just that's glorious. Well, I find so, them quite charming. In, well, it depends on the euphemism in the context, right? But I, Of course it does. But I find them quite charming. I, I think they speak to a kind of civility and, and mm. thoughtfulness of manners. Yes. For instance, I'm so glad you brought that up. For instance, there's a show that I've been watching for a little while that you've started watching recently. You might not have started watching it recently, but we've been talking about it recently. It's the HBO series Succession. Oh, man, no, yeah, I watched that from on your recommendation a few years ago. So yeah. there's this wonderful moment in a recent episode where the elderly patriarch, Logan Roy, uh, he is suffering from a UTI, urinary tract infection. Yep. He's on a form of medication that he's forgotten to take, which before a very important shareholders meeting has made him go a little bit fuzzy, rather disoriented. Uh, he asks his son-in-law to escort him to the toilet in a kind of dazed state. I know and where at you're one going point, with this. <laughs> at, at one point, it's been a long time since I've laughed that suddenly out loud. At, at one point, he's clearly uh, having difficulty uh, standing and aiming. Let's just put it that way. And so his son-in-law, Tom, opens up the door, asks if he needs some help, and suggests now... Do you need me to hold the scepter? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> which is, which on every level is magnificent. Not only, not only can I not imagine ever being able to del deliver those lines with a straight face, <laughs> but it's holding together Logan's already cracking nobility and his dignity, trying to take an excruciating situation and to try to build it up or or reinforce it with just the slightest degree, not exactly of levity. It's not levity, nor is it, nor is it pandering, but it's trying to help Logan maintain his dignity in conditions sort of, that are... I, I think it's also a bit of pandering. I think it also speaks also to, to the sort of comprehensive power that they perceive. Yeah, probably, but I'm, see, I'm, I'm becoming really too warm to Tom... Well, yeah, well, that's, a different, that's a different conversation. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it is. This show isn't actually about swearing. It's just that it's I see necessary. Euphemisms, the... euphemisms, Willie. This is, this is wonderful because I, I, I think you're right. There is something kind of preposterous about euphemisms because of 
the verbal contortions you need to go through in order to try to get there. But I, I think you're right. When it comes down to it, it is a form of mannerliness. Hmm. It is a form of etiquette. And it is an attempt to try to be gentle, to try to be tender to the ears of one's listeners. To, to we, cultivate an to... ethos of beauty within oneself. Oh, I love that. Isn't yeah. that sweet? Yeah, I like it that, too. That's nice. So anyway... So hang on, you, can I just say, you have the job now <laughs> of setting up, up the topic, topic, right? And I mean, this is fun. So you're going to have to say it at some point, but then I need yeah. you to come up with the way that we're going to avoid saying it after that. Oh, man. All right. Well, well. firstly, can I just also say, uh, I was just thinking while you're doing our little language warning, you know, I was thinking, you know, these parents in the car with their kids... <laughs> not wanting their children's sensitive ears to be assaulted. But then I'm thinking this wonderful, noble parent who insists when they're in the car with their children, having the minefield on, mm. bravo you. Yes. I mean, that is just, that's, there, there's something really special. Or, or it's that. a way of sending their child to sleep, which would also be perfectly <laughs> legitimate reasons. To what I also love about this is the word that you're about to say isn't even that bad. I think people no, probably really have, not. have Good heavens. within their minds conjured up an image of the very foulest of terms. It's, it's, I would, I would hazard a guess that within 10 years, it won't even be considered yep. something you would do. A, I agree. Anyway. I think it's just about that way now. Yeah. So look, Good luck. back in 2005, the American philosopher Harry Frankfurt added a word to the philosophical vernacular, uh, the philosophical dictionary that I think is, is kind of irreplaceable. I can't think of a euphemism for this particular term. And the term that he used, he devoted in a very, very famous best-selling essay. The term that he used was bullshit. He said there's something about bullshit that captures an idea that really can't be grasped with by recourse to any other word. So it's not quite lying because when someone's lying, they know what the truth is and they're deliberately renouncing that truth in order to say something that they know to be false. It's not quite humbug either, which is just kind of saying nonsense or saying something that has no necessary connection to reality, or, or is even just sort of purposefully grumpy or curmudgeonly. He said the thing that distinguishes bullshit, and one of the reasons that Harry Frankfurt wrote this essay is because he said we're swimming in it. It's, it's one of the features of our time, and yet we don't have an adequate concept of it. He says one of the things that characterizes, that defines bullshit, is that the person who does it, the person who speaks it, let's I'll only use this term once, the bullshitter, it's not so much that they are lying, it's that they couldn't care less whether or not what they're saying is true. It's a diagnosis that I think is absolutely brilliant because the primary purpose of it is to try to get away with something that is beyond one's area of competence or expertise. It's to say something that could be true, that may not be true, but either way, I don't want to be found out. I don't want to be called on it. So it's a way of weaseling one's way through a situation where you can say something, you can get away with it, and God willing, nobody's ever going to think about it ever again. And one of the arguments that Frankfurt makes, and I think it's a very, very important one, that ultimately is more corrosive than outright mendacity, than outright deceit. Because at least with deceit, the person who's doing the deceiving has some regard for the truth, even if they regard it only to renounce it. Yes, when truth, truth matter, remains something of importance. Yes, and, yeah. and something 
something to which one has tethered oneself, even if you're even yeah. if you're turning your back on it. Yeah. Whereas bullshit, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Do you want to say this isn't though actually what we're talking about today though? No, we're talking about a related topic. Um, we are. Which, uh, yeah, I remember when you said to me we should do this show. My first thought was, isn't this the same thing? No, it's not. Do you want to say why? Yeah. Well, you convinced me that it's not. So yes. Okay. So what we're actually talking about today, though, and I, I think there's maybe a family resemblance, maybe there's a genetic connection, but it's not quite the same. And that's shit stirring. Now, I don't think, incidentally, and you might want to try this over dinner tonight. <laughs> I don't think the term shit stirring raises any eyebrows at the moment. Maybe if my, if my 11-year-old son said it, I'd be surprised. I'd probably giggle but I wouldn't be offended by it. Whereas if someone simply exclaimed once someone said something bullshit, uh, um, I think that would probably be more shocking. So we all know, don't we, what a shit stirrer is. My father-in-law is one, for instance. He likes getting himself into a delicate situation and then saying something that's relatively or extremely outrageous, maybe with a wry smile on his face. He likes whipping up a bit of dissent he likes saying things that are going to purposely needle other people and then kind of stand back a little bit and watch the sparks fly. Um, our, our guest, and we're going to bring him in very, very shortly, our guest has suggested that what bullshit is to truth, no necessary connection between them, no necessary relationship between them, shit stirring is to, let's call it, um, relatively helpful advice. In other words, you might say something that by the grammatical form of it seems like it's something that you mean to be taken seriously in a current political, cultural, social, familiar circumstance. But as soon as it's said, it's clear that the purpose isn't just to provoke, but it's to whip things up, to foment a certain kind of tension or animosity or disagreement, and for the purpose of it then to be the disagreement itself. Now, when you then put that into a social media setting, you could actually say, couldn't you, Waleed, that when there are so many eyes, so there were so many voices or people or users or opinionators who are clamoring for attention, you could almost say that what social media has done is it's led to the ubiquity of, let's just say, heedless, unnecessary provocation, where people, in order to make a point, and it may be a a just point. There are a few examples that immediately come to mind we might want to come to later. Something is said that is controversial on a delicate topic or extremely provocative at a moment that requires a degree of tact or where there are raw feelings involved. That thing that is said provokes a tremendous amount of debate, an outcry. The point of it may be or at least the consequence of it, is the outcry, the debate, the... the Sorry, they're, they're the, two different things. Uh, yes, yes, the, the, the outcry or the intensity of the debate. So you don't want to provoke a debate. What you want to provoke is a spectacle. Yes. Is that's that what you're saying? Putting it. Yeah, that may well Because I think that's a really important distinction. I think there are interventions you can make. So I think we should also say the person who is doing this it's, it's an act of provocation, right? And the person who's doing this may not even necessarily fully believe the argument that they're putting. Mm, mm, the reason it's right. stirring is that you get a reaction from it, right? 
But I think there's an important distinction to be made between that which is provocative and that which is thought-provoking. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And I think you can make an intervention by introducing an idea that you don't fully believe in for thought-provoking reasons, which I would think is a noble thing to do. I think that's a different thing to saying something that you may believe in just as lightly or not at all, but really for the purposes of creating the spectacle. I think there, I I don't know, maybe you can blur this distinction for me, but I, I think it's a really important one. And, you know, I would say on this show, we, or at least I, do the former quite often, mm-hmm. right? Where we'll right. be discussing something and I will say, well, hang on. What about X? And it may well be X is not my position, but I think X needs to be heard here in order for us to have a conversation that's actually meaningful rather than a conversation that proceeds sort of blissfully unaware of this other perspective or this objection to the way the conversation might be proceeding. There's a slight difference though here, Waleed, and I think at those moments, and it is really interesting to note that you do it, I think, quite often, I do it almost never. And I think that actually says something about my own moral deformity, to be perfectly honest. Because what what you're able to do at those moments, you're there ventriloquizing another voice that one could imagine to be taking part in the same conversation. And which is held in good faith. And which is held in good faith. That's exactly right. In other words, even though it might not be your position, it is a position that could reasonably be be held by somebody that maybe is held in good faith by somebody. And to which uh, we rightly give a degree of attention. And then, you know, using that as a way then of feeling out the edges of something, coming up against the limits of a particular argument, finding the blind spots within one's own position. I think there's something about that, you're right, which is really, really valuable. But when something is done, and again, Waleed, I I think the context is important, or the subject matter, let me put it that way, is important. I think when something done that renounces or ignores the requirement of a degree of tact, especially when the issue is a sensitive one. I think when something is said that isn't really meant to be taken seriously, but is meant maybe to expose the limits of a particular position, but in so doing holds out no hope for or opportunity of something constructive emerging in its place. In other words, a kind of mere debunking that leaves nothing but ruins around it. Or a form of language that trades in a form of of blatant cynicism uh, that provokes by tearing, that provokes by reducing. I think those are all forms of shit-stirring that may well provoke a high degree of emotion it may well spark a kind of spectacular debate. In other words, a debate for whom, for which the, the conduct of the debate itself is the point, not something, not something. Mm, a out, debate out that's the other asking side. you to get the popcorn. Yeah, yeah, but 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 I think again, the real criteria here is ultimately, shit stirring is not a form of speech that expects to be taken seriously, and yet is spoken in a way as if it was expecting to be taken seriously or spoken in a context within which the only people who would be speaking in this context expect to be taken seriously. In other words, it's a context in which seriousness is expected and then for shit stirring to come in its place, it perverts the whole context from within. May I point out 
um, you've done an appalling job at coming up with a euphemism to get us around this so far. See, this is this is hard because you could say heedless provocation, you could say irresponsible provocation, but none of it, none of it has the idea of the whisk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, I just thought or I'd the point glee. You're right. I mean, I think there's an input. So, our guest has written an article about this, and mm. the point that he makes is that the person who's doing this is, and this is the quote, unconcerned about whether the statements that take the grammatical form of advice actually help anyone. Yeah, which I think is an important sort of distinction, right? So, the person who is making a devil's advocate contribution. Uh, what? Oh, no, sorry. That's not your euphemism. Okay. Okay. No, no, you're right. Devil's advocate contribution. Yeah, that's yeah. A slightly, I'm saying that's yes. a different thing. Yes, it, so the person who is making a devil's advocate contribution, um, I think he's expecting that it might help someone. They, they may be wrong in that or right in that, but they're committed to this idea that it is through the agitation of contrasting views that we arrive at something better. Yes. Right? So I think that's a very helpful litmus test, I suppose. Are they can even... I just say, can I, can I say, Waleed, there is also a tremendous virtue, and again, I'm confessing my own faults here, there's a tremendous virtue in being able to fully imaginatively inhabit the perspective of somebody else, even a perspective that I might far, find morally reprehensible, and then argue that position from within with a degree of, with a degree of seriousness. To, to my mind, I mean, persons generally, politicians especially, but say moral philosophers in particular, that that ability to inhabit another's morally reprehensible position and argue it fully, thoroughly, in a full-throated manner, that for me is a very, very, very high intellectual virtue. You just articulated a philosophical basis for the moral virtue of lawyers, which I yeah. think might make you the only person in history to have done something like that. So well done. I think that's very okay. <laughs> I'm gratified by that. Um, I think, though... I'm just trying to think of examples of the kind of thing you might be talking about that might be not serious enough that we can't play with them. So maybe, do you remember, would you have watched about 300 times because it's always on television, um, Liar Liar, that film? <laughs> yeah, Jim Carrey. Yeah. yeah. There's a scene it's in- It's one an, of my kids' favorite movies. Yeah, of course, because it's the only film that's been on television. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> <it's> <laughs> was, I don't think it's still true, but there's a the thing where it just, for some reason, every time I turn the TV on for about three years, that was on. Um, but there's that scene where was it the, the kid, Max, I think his name is, says hmm. something about how beauty doesn't matter. Oh, that, that's not what's important. And Jim Carrey responds by saying, that's just something ugly people say. Yeah. And he's saying that because he's not allowed to lie and this, he's, he's under this affliction where he cannot lie. So he's just, you know, it's aggressive truth-telling coming from him. Now, it's obviously a joke. Um, is that an instance where someone is saying something that sounds like a serious intervention, um, but is clearly there just to agitate people? Could, could you actually say that's a serious intervention? Now, I, I guess what I'm getting at is how easy is it to tease apart mm. these categories? Okay. I'm going to say something really controversial here, and I, uh, you, you may well disagree. With I me. hope you mean I mean, it, I mean, Scott. Well, I hope you mean it. Well, this is actually something about which the two of us disagree, so I know that you're going to disagree with <laughs> okay, sure. on it. For me, one of the things that does characterize shit-stirring, and, I mean, our guest has argued persuasively, and I think incredibly meaningfully that 
the practice of shit-stirring has taken root in moral philosophy, which is quite frankly the last place in the world one would expect to find it. Um, But one of the things that characterizes it is a degree of insensitivity. No, it's not insensitivity. It's a degree of recognition of the sensitivity of the subject matter and the lobbing of a grenade into the middle of it, knowing that in these discussions... Sensitivity, tact, deep feelings matter. An aversion to injury. Yes. So, so for instance, some of the examples that he gives, and we're going to introduce him in, in just a second, are arguments, for instance, that some moral philosophers have made about the licitness, say, of infanticide under certain conditions. Peter Singer has right. made that, that precise argument. Yeah. Uh, there have been other arguments involving the donation of one's organs, the compulsory, mandatory donation of yeah. one's organs by means of a lottery. There have been other examples of, for instance, the uh, administration of affection medication effectively to allow or to permit, enable parents to love their children more fully or more properly. So, so these are what's interesting to me about each one of those circumstances is that it takes a particular zone, a particular space that is shrouded with a certain degree of sanctity, one's body, one's organs, one's family, one's children. An example, now, I think, and the problem I had with it at the time was that I took it as a piece of shit stirring, but maybe shit stirring than the service of the angels, if I can put it this way. Some years back, and you remember this vividly, when Yasmin Abdel-Majid tweeted on Anzac Day, Oh, yeah, the Facebook post. Yeah, yeah. Oh, was it Facebook? Was it Facebook? I think it was originally post? Lest, Facebook post. Anyway, it doesn't really matter, but yes. Lest, lest we forget. And then included with that the list of uh, Man- Manus Island and refugees. Palestine, yes. I think, was in there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I would be the last person in the world to say that the severe moral attention that is owed to those who are the primary casualties of what is a monstrous border policy is out of the realms of acceptable public discourse or even acceptable provocation. I think you and I can both think of forms of really effective, powerful public provocation that drew almost garish light onto the full extent of the costs of the consequences of Australia's border policy. But it seems to me that in that particular moment, given the brevity of the, of the form of communication, given the extreme emotional sensitivities of the day, given, it seemed to me, the lack of likelihood that this particular form of intervention was ever going to persuade anybody. Oh, my goodness, I hadn't thought about that. Given the high likelihood that it would get people's backs up given the, I would say, high likelihood that some would applaud and that many others would be offended by it. It seems to me that that probably takes the form of a form of moral provocation that probably deserves to come into this category of shit-stirring. In other words, it was always going to raise a great degree of controversy. It was probably not going to convince any minds, and it it portrayed a degree of insensitivity to the tact that would be required in any meaningful moral intervention on something like Anzac Day to the plight 
of fellow human beings. So to my mind, that probably gets us more into the realm of what I'm talking. Now, you may well disagree, Walid, about with that particular diagnosis. Um, I'm not saying that the tweet or the Facebook post or even the sentiment was morally culpable, but I think if there was something wrong with it, that's what was wrong with it. Oh, well, if you're going to say that last sentence, I can agree with you. I mean, the rest of it, I don't know that I do because, you know, you spoke about the sensitivity surrounding it and the response it was likely to generate. My my sense is actually the response to it was so heavily confected. Of course. That, that it was heavily convected among some, Willie. It was heavily convected among some. I'd, Certainly say, I'd say most. I mean, far more incendiary things are said all the time and no one cares. Yeah, but but this is also one of the things. I, I, I don't think, for the same reason we can't say to those who are deeply offended by the gratuitous celebrations on Australia Day, mm. that, that that feeling is sort of politically performative. There, I mean, I know people who were tremendously offended by it because of the extent to which it, it betrayed a degree of, of tactlessness. So I don't think we can say that all the responses, or even the majority of the responses, were confected. I think you're right that many of the responses were opportunistic and confected, but it did what we've just described shit-stirring as doing. Namely, it frothed up a particular debate and was almost certainly not going to change anything. Yeah, but I think it was a contribution that was made, whether you liked it or not, I think it was a contribution that was made to make a point that she and other people felt was important. Now, you might say it lacked some tact, et cetera, et cetera, but I don't think it was averting to the question of whether or not any this would help anybody. You, I think you could argue there was a misjudgment as to whether or not it would help, and we can have an argument about that, but I don't think it was intended that way. But I think this is, I think this is, I mean, we don't want to debate this example forever, no. but I think what's interesting about that is, I think it shows that where the lines and the on the idea or the concept can become difficult to police. But why don't we just go to the source who can tell us? <laughs> I mean, that's probably a better thing Let's to do. Let's do that. Um, yeah. You're listening to The Minefield. Uh, you might be listening to us on the radio uh, on RN, in which case, thank you very much for doing so. You should also know that you can catch us as a podcast anytime you like. So that's on the ABC Listen app. Uh, but you can also follow The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. And I should just gently bring to your attention that the topic we are discussing today necessitates some language that's not entirely proper. So just be aware of that. We're not going to overdo it. I pledge to do it not at all, but I can't vouch for Scott. So it all falls to my shoulders, does it? Well, thankfully, we've got a guest. Nicholas Agar is a philosopher and an ethicist. He's currently a distinguished visiting professor at Carnegie Mellon University. He's written a wonderful piece called Confessions of a Philosophical Shitster for ABC Religion Ethics. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thank you. It's, uh, I've enjoyed listening to you guys. So look, it's, it's been striking me a lot lately as I think about what we do when we do this show. We try to make careful distinctions between things. <laughs> I think it's a, it, it's a really important task to, to make sure that we know what it is we're talking about, that we're sensitive about the divisions between things and what they are not. So you've heard Walid and I, so we're not talking about the context of moral philosophy. I think we need to talk about shit stirring within moral philosophy itself. But maybe can you help us think through, you've, you've heard me try to get my hands around what is it that distinguishes a piece of 
let's say, harsh provocation, what Henry David Thoreau described as screaming at another person so that they might be awake, versus a form of shit-stirring that maybe doesn't quite live up to those otherwise noble goals. Can you help us tease out the differences between those two things? I can certainly have a go at it. And um, yeah, so, I mean, I guess when I think about shit-stirring, it basically is divorced from any serious intent to help. And I, I view it as something that, and often, look, there are so many, like the Anzac Day case is one that was challenging me. I was thinking, well, where does that lie? I mean, it's in a way, if the person was advancing it, it is a bit of a provocation, but was there really any expectation that anyone, you, you know a lot of people will be upset. And I guess I would be inclined to put it on the other side, that it's basically, here it is. I mean, I'm leaving you with something. It will upset you, but I am hoping that you'll come away. Because there are many things that people say to me that kind of upset me, and I think, though well, that's wrong. And I find that I keep on thinking about them, and then I come back to them, and I kind of, well, I wasn't. I was offended right then, but now I've, oh, I've, I've still thought about it. I'm still thinking about it, and I'm kind of ready to do things. So I'm not, I couldn't do it then, but I might do it now. And I think the other thing, I think that Scott, that you were talking about is the fact that shit stirring and philosophy seems to predominate in these areas where we are like having children, raising sort of, you know, I don't know, raising a family, all of these areas where we feel, you know, obviously they're areas of sensitivity, we're deeply invested. There's something about, I think it's when you put philosophers and other academics on social media, it's a bad sort of combination that you, that generates shit stirring there because I know that if I say something like, well, according to me, I don't know, you change your mind about becoming a parent because you, no one told you that newborns cry. Uh, according to me, you should be able to painlessly kill. Do it painlessly. We don't want to cause pain because we've listened to Peter Singer. You should be able to painlessly terminate your child. No, I know that's going to work. And the feature of shit stirring is I don't, I, I just want you to react. It's like a, it's almost, it's abetted by social media. And I want you to get really angry. And secretly, I'm hoping that you'll write things and maybe it'll help me on Google Scholar. Because if you are so convinced you're wrong, well, then please boost my Google Scholar rating. Please retweet me with a, an offended sort of attachment. What, what is this person saying? That's all good for me. So there are incentives for it, but where the uh, sort of the thing that the areas where sort of philosophers go into these areas of high sensitivity, but explicitly disavow, they make all sorts of, you know, oh, so should I kill my newborn now if I, I wanted to become a parent, but I didn't know and told me about the crying. And you said, no, 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 please don't do that. Why not? You just told me it would be okay. Uh, yeah, well, that was just to annoy you. And I, but I don't want you killing your baby. That's a sign of just, I think, needless provocation. So I like provocations, great. And often it sort of comes down to, I don't I love, you know, ideas. I mean, if you, philosophers, if you really want to get a rise out of someone, really overstate your ideas. <laughs> just, you say this is an obligation, you must do this now, and that'll get up your nose. Don't say, as Waleed was saying, here's, well, here's, a, here's a thought. So you guys are so good at saying, here's a thought. 
I don't know where this is true. You're introducing an idea to me and you're kind of in a way, I don't know, do with it what you will. It's an interesting idea. But if I really want to get up your nose, I'm going to tell you you are obligated to do it or I'm going to tell you I'm going to make it as provocative as possible. I don't want you to I, I will, I'll back myself in an IQ contest to defeat you so that you are stuck with it. What interests me about this is, as I listen to you, the sins that are committed in what you're describing are what I would probably describe as sins of the soul. They're, they're ego-based or they're, the intention is deformed or compromised in some way. And without wanting to go into a long-standing disagreement between Scott and me about the relevance of intention to moral judgment or the judgment of a moral an action as moral or otherwise, it seems to me that intention really does matter in the scheme that you're providing here. So, for example, to take the infanticide example you give, I could imagine a scenario, I will admit this is not something I've read a lot about, so I don't know exactly the spirit and the tone in which it's offered, but... I could imagine a scenario where someone talks about that and even makes an argument like that because they are that committed to a particular principle and that is just where the principle leads them. And it might be that it's a grotesque outcome, but they are so devoted to the philosophical or moral whatever principle that they are pursuing that they are they follow it to the bitter end, however bitter that might be. And I would say... Someone like Peter Singer does that quite often. Right? He's, he's so utilitarian in his philosophy that he does take you to very uncomfortable places because he pursues that without wishing to temper the, the principles at play. And I can, and this is the lawyer in me, I can see the benefit in that because even if the particular conclusions might be grotesque or whatever, and a person might even be actually just throwing them out there and arguing for them in a way that seems incendiary and needlessly provocative. They do have the benefit of forcing us or allowing us to sharpen our concepts and maybe the limits of our concepts. And so in that way, they do help. Um, maybe that's a long range view. Uh, I, I, I don't know. But I, I guess what I'm saying is, the effect might be that it helps. It may be that the intention was to grab attention or something far less noble, but but it can kind of help. So I guess I, I want your reflections just on that idea broadly, but then specifically on the idea of how much really it's it's the spirit behind it. It's where the heart is in these statements being made that seems to matter more in your calculus than the specific words on the page. Yeah, I mean, I actually think they can help. So shit-stirring can help, and smart people are shit-stirrers. And if, if you're ever basically forced to sort of say, why do I not agree with this, or why do I not agree with that conclusion about newborns, then I'm thinking. But notice that basically if you try to engage me in a debate about what's the best bidding system in contract bridge, I'm also thinking. So it's always good to be thinking. And philosophers are smart, academics are smart, um, and I always think, well, okay, is this the best thing? So when I look at the world right now, I kind of see a world that's in need of new ideas. And so I guess when, you know, do you really want to have people who are paid to come up with new ideas? Shit-stirring, because clever shit-stirrers are really clever. 
and to defeat them, you've got to be quite clever in response. Or do you want them basically thinking, gosh, right now our civilization's kind of running out of ideas. Um, we need some fresh ideas. Anytime you debate anything, it's good. We could have a show if you want on, I don't know, the best bidding system in Contract Bridge. It'll be great. And it'll be very intellectual. And yeah, I mean, I've got my own views, by the way, and I'm going to argue for them. So get prepared. But it's, it's kind of that when our culture, I think part of when our culture basically sort of says, well, this is how we're going to invest our intellectual resources, talking about whether it's okay to, I don't know if you're you change your mind about becoming a parent, but you've got this newborn, should you painlessly kill it? Well, that's one debate you could have. You could also think about, I don't know, this thing called climate change, maybe. Um, there are lots of things that where we really need the distinctive contributions about philosophers, but they're almost the lure of social media and Google Scholar means that they're attracted into these other pursuits. Um, I think so there's there's something else going on here, though that that we need to that we need to talk about. <laughs> um, I I think we see it in an intensified and, to my mind, an extremely troubling form in philosophy departments and in moral philosophy more generally. Uh, but I I don't think we only see it there, and that is it's what uh, I've just been reading um, Judith Brett's wonderful wonderful collection of some of her past. Essays. It's a fabulous book called Doing Politics, where she laments the number of disincentives that now exist for scholars, within, academics within universities to write for the public. Um, we could say to write in a manner that is responsible. I think that's what public writing ultimately is. It's, it's writing in a manner that is responsible, that's answerable to people apart from oneself. Um, there's, there's, there are so few incentives and there are active disincentives for writing in public. Uh, unless this writing in public achieves certain particular metrics. And then there's such a strong incentive for the writing of pieces for niche journals with a vanishingly small readership on issues in a discipline, and here I'm thinking specifically of moral philosophy, that for the better part of the last 60 years has had a profound identity crisis about what it's all about in the first place. I mean, one of the things that moral philosophy has done over the course of the last century is to renounce the belief that it should be in the, as you described it, Nick, giving of advice at all or being in the therapy advice. As, I mean, Wittgenstein famously called philosophy a form of therapy, moving us from confusion to clarity. So, so there is a kind of identity crisis that's going on in philosophy at the moment. And then you have the fact that philosophers are writing for very, 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 very small audiences on topics that are becoming incredibly niche and therefore the incentive to drive up readership of those niche topics uh, then becomes, I think, to some extent perverse, if not diabolical. I think what's missing here, and, I, and Waleed, I'm with you on the whole point about intention. I think one of the things that's, that has to be there for shit-stirring to be shit-stirring, is an intention merely to provoke. There's, in other words, it's a kind of nihilistic provocation without it necessarily leading to anything beyond one's own, what do you want to call it, promotion or one's mentions uh, or one's kind of gratuitous enjoyment. But then beyond that, I think that can only take place in an environment of such overarching cynicism as to, as to the effectiveness of real advice 
or the possibility that words can in fact change or transform or help cultivate a better political culture. So I think that the, the nihilism that has to be involved, the self-centered narcissism that's behind the intention, and then in a context within which we really don't believe that a great many things in fact matter or that philosophy is supposed to be about those things that matter in the first place, all of these things I think are involved within the particular moral philosophical perversion of shit-stirring, which is why then it becomes really troubling when it spills out of a, of a discipline like that into other forms of public speech, public debate, as if, well, the moral philosophers are doing it, so why can't we? Uh, I, I think that's all. I love that. I mean, that's exactly, it's a good diagnosis of the problem. So I, I, the people I feel sorry for in universities are media officers. And media officers are people who turn up. They find these esteemed academics, these esteemed philosophers, who, and, and in some sense, they feel some obligation. Well, you know, taxpayers' money is go, going into sustaining these universities. Could you say something useful? And often they're met with basically a shoulder shrugging. Well, why would I do that? Or some version of what's in it for me. So in a way, there's very little incentive to actually, you know, people say, well, we have these these universities. We're aware they cost lots of money. We love them. I mean, I'm aware that basically sending my kids to them is getting increasingly expensive. But what are, what am I getting out of them? And I, I got sick of you go out to dinner party and you get introduced as the academic philosopher. And I mean, the idea that you would tell them what you're doing is just basically absurd. I mean, they definitely don't want to hear what you're thinking or doing or whatever. It would be the last thing. You'll never get invited again. And I thought, well, there's something I'm paid this money to think about problems. And yet you know that if I seriously start talking about my approach to problems, it's going to kill the dinner party. I mean, that's it. Never stopped us. Never stopped us. Nicholas. Well, hang on though. Hang on. So, so, so. I mean, don't you think though, Nick? The the, the beginning of the sh of the of the shit stirring malaise begins with moral philosophy's over reliance on frankly preposterous hypothetical scenarios hmm. that do nobody any good and that elevate the moral philosopher him or herself to the status of a kind of God in charge of his or her creation, sort of leaving out things, including things just for the sake of the experiment. To my mind, if you want to, if you want to find where the rot begins, the rot really does begin there. But sorry, I'm going to take that respond, as a comment. We need to um, reset. Sorry. Yes, if you've just joined us, this is The Mindfield. with Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. We're joined by philosopher Nicholas Agar, distinguished visiting professor at Carnegie Mellon University. Just do not invite him to a dinner party. <laughs> I, I'm a bit at odds with Scott on um, scenario-based thinking. Uh, not entirely, but a little bit, for the reasons I was explaining before. And I, I think these things can be mobilised to sharpen concepts. The, the further I go into this, though, the more I wonder, is the problem that we seem to think these concepts are useful? <laughs> so, mm, you know, mm, that's true. Are that's we, true. And maybe this is truer for philosophers than it is for the general population. I don't know, but um, I suspect so. That we're playing in a field of concepts that might not actually be very useful. So we shouldn't be surprised when people who are in those fields engage in a kind of discourse that isn't intended to be terribly useful. 
possibly. I, I like the idea of being occasionally useful. It's like, you know, I, I like the idea of occasionally offering useful advice and the idea that, I mean, because I guess in a way there are incentives. So in a way, if my audience is just other academic philosophers, then I, once I get my piece published, I just want to, I don't know, I guess we've used the S word, so irritate the shit out of them. And I want them to respond. Every time they respond, it's good for me. Um, if they tweet about me, it's great for me on social media. That's what I'm incentivized to do. And the the thing that characterizes shit stirring is in academia, or at least the areas I know, is this explicit disavowal. Or don't act on this, or maybe act on this in the distant future. So yes, we should. We need. What's the way to solve this? Is a what I view as a shit stir. We need to. How do we fix? climate change, well, we need to give ourselves all moral and we need to take pharmaceuticals that make us morally better. So we should all take drugs. Mm. Yeah, that's the way we do it. But of course, we don't have that drug, those drugs yet. They're coming. So we need to develop them. Now, that's quite provocative, because you might think doing something about climate change, doing something is about doing something about carbon emissions right now. But in a way, I'm incentivized to get your attention. A lot of people have responded to that. And then I, I sort of don't really care what people outside of the academy think. I, that's something I don't like because um, I would love to occasionally be able to turn up to a dinner party and for people to say, yeah, no, that's, that's useful. But I think what's happening in the way you're talking about this is that you frequently reference social media which seems to be suggesting that a big part of the problem lies not in the engagement with one's academic peers in the sort of closed shop of the ivory tower, but to mix metaphors, but it, it's in the engagement with the public and the incentives and perhaps even the measurements of success that we use in our engagement with the public, that that's actually where something is going badly wrong. And yet... You're also saying that the problems seem to exist when it's just academics trying to yeah, agitate themselves. So is this a problem that's just within the very moral fibre of something like moral philosophy? Can I, can I say that it's kind of everywhere? Certainly in social media. So there is this, you know, basically academics have a Google Scholar, which we all, you know, if you meet another academic, people are rushing to look them up. How many citations do you have or whatever? And that's sort of in a way, that's a Google product. Um, but also, um, you're right, within, within the academy, sort of in the seminar room, there are also incentives. So if I, if I care, if I wanted to prove that I was smarter than you, well, one way for me to prove in a philosophy seminar that I'm smarter than you, I mean, I, I don't believe this, by the way, but say if I did, um, would be to advance a preposterous conclusion and elicit, make, prompt you to respond and then show, ha-ha, you know, that you basically, yeah, you can't answer me, I've got an answer to that. You thought that Canberra was the capital of Australia. In actual fact, it's not. I mean, in a way, if I can out-argue you on that. So philosophy philosophy seminar room is all about um, basically people advancing things that are that get a reaction there and basically are demonstrations that well I'm better at this argument stuff that you so in a way that's another incentive that sort of says well 
yeah, I'm going to overstate my conclusion. That works if I go on social media. It makes people angry. And if I, especially if I have intruded into these areas of sensitivity, like raising kids, that works too. But it also works in the seminar room because it inspires people to write about me. And, and, and the more obviously preposterous the thing yeah. I've defended, the smarter I must be. I, I must be. Imagine. Yeah. Imagine. Here it is. Um, well, I defended that. Just, yeah. <laughs> it's, well, yes, yeah. it's the equivalent of I got this it's person off when they were caught with the gun in their hand. So I'm yeah. obviously a great, a great lawyer. But is is what you're identifying then a result of a kind of philosophical thinking or moral thinking that doesn't have boundaries? So as in because there is now just vanishingly little consensus on any kind of anything that sits above the conversation that we're having, right? There's no commitment to an overarching kind of religious telos, for example, or even other any other kind of moral orientation, really. It's just this boundaryless form of parry and thrust that we end up in this situation. Maybe. I think that's a good, a nice little summary of the problem. So in a way, I think it would be good. I think sometimes philosophers... Moral philosophers are not so good at coming up with the problems. I mean, they're smart people. They're not so good at coming up with the problems that need fixing. So I was saying that the media officer at the last in Wellington, the last university I was at before I came here, I sort of said, well, I think it would be great if you actually told us philosophers, we've got really good philosophy department there, what problems you want, what what problems do you have? Because if we, if I'm left to my own devices as a philosopher, I will probably just shit stir but if you were to tell me, well, look, I, the people I'm talking to say they're worried about this. Have you heard of this virus thing? Any thoughts? Because I, I, we need help on that. And it's often a matter of sort of, yeah, why don't you guys publish a list? Hey, um, academic philosophy departments, we need help on this. Um, any, can you send us anything that we can understand that would be useful? then that would be a good way to do it because otherwise, yeah, there are too many incentives to, to basically shitster and not give useful advice. So how do you counteract that? I should also say, of course, that, and I can say this because I've published a great many of them, there, I mean, there have been some remarkable moral philosophical contributions, for instance, to the non-epidemiological aspects, the profoundly moral, ethical aspects of the COVID-19 crisis. So, I mean, it's, it's certainly there. You're absolutely right. But I think part of the pretension or maybe one of the corruptions that's in beneath this, and Waleed, I think you were really gesturing in this direction, it's almost as if philosophical thinking has become nihilistic, not in the sense that it's bent on its own destruction, although sometimes you listen to academic seminars and I feel that way, but, but because it has no goal in mind. Um, Raymond Gator, for instance, has, uh, has written about this at some length. But many times the only obligation that moral philosophy has believed that it has for itself is to follow thinking wherever it leads, even if it leads one to monstrousness or even if it leads one to nihilism. But, you know, Ray Gator points out that, you know, nurtured within the tradition of philosophy itself are not just external limits to philosophy, but internal limits. There are places within lives and minds that have been nurtured by commitments to justice and truth and love there are internal limits to the places in which that form of thinking 
is prepared to go. So when you have, I think you're right, Waleed, when you have that that absence of an external telos, an external goal or some kind of overarching framework within which certain forms of behavior and advice and communal living make sense. And then you have the refusal to acknowledge the internal limits that ought to guide and superintend thinking to make sure that even if it doesn't end up becoming merely a form of, of advice, it at least inclines itself through tact and tenderness to the circumstances of everyday life or the reality of the problems that the world faces, when you kind of as a discipline shrug off either of those things, then you really are left with something that that has very little to justify it. I just say then that any form of political commentary, political opinion making, any form of public discourse that renounces either of those two things as well, um, it just reduces itself to what Soren Kierkegaard called chatter. I mean, it's speech for the sake of speech, it's speech without responsibility, speech without the expectation that one will ever be taken seriously. We do have to end there, but Scott, it's just occurred to me that Kierkegaard might become your new Aristotle. So can I just yeah. say one thing for Scott? I don't want to sort of, there are philosophers saying amazing things. And my complaint is, so it would be weird for me to sort of say, hey, it's just me. I mean, that would sound vain. Absurd, <laughs> no, of course it? not. Of course. I mean, they're, they're saying it, but, but we need much more. So when I think about our culture's right need right now, we need a lot. And so when you sort of say, well, look, the, the figures, there are amazing philosophers really trying to solve big problems and writing amazing things about the pandemic. And if we could actually just say, well, let's have even more of that, then that would be something that would be a great outcome, I think. Nicholas Agar is Distinguished Visiting Professor at Carnegie Mellon University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. Nicholas, thank you so much. Thank you. We're done for the week. See you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.